Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Federal information technology is unfortunately known for its outdated legacy systems. This makes it hard for the government to take advantage of America's own innovation and technology. There's currently legislation in Congress to fast track IT modernization. This legislation's goal is to improve our government IT systems and processes to give departments and agencies the ability to deliver better services. Possibly it will protect citizens' privacy with better authentication mechanisms and improved cybersecurity overall. This is especially important during this COVID crisis. So many of our government employees are working from home trying to deliver the key programs at the federal, state, and local level like small business loans and unemployment insurance. This legislation also encourages the government to follow current industry standards as the norm by enabling government procurement to become more nimble and granting the ability to upgrade and update its hardware and software programs similar to the commercial market. This can be done with more cloud computing partnerships and software service options. Today, we will discuss how COVID has influenced the federal IT modernization process and how IT modernization could strengthen the government's ability to protect us during these difficult times. My guest is Jason Oxman, president and CEO of the Information Technology Industry Council, also referred to as ITI. We will discuss why ITI has prioritized federal IT modernization in its recent advocacy work. Jason's insights on the government's investment in cybersecurity and privacy emphasize the extent to which modernizing the critical infrastructure or possibly the lack thereof will dictate the U.S. government's ability to use current innovative technology tools to enable more effective and efficient government processes for our citizens. Jason, thank you so much for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. You all released a letter in July that caught my attention about IT and government spending as well as you know how they kind of lay over into doing more public private partnership work and then i read the testimony from one of your great staff that really highlighted the importance of government understanding you know commercial best practices and how government standards aren't up to that so it maybe want you to be on the podcast so thank you for being here today well shane i'm delighted to be here it's an important topic and i appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion Absolutely. So what is going on in the federal IT modernization space, especially during the time of COVID when so many people are working remotely? Well, it's an important issue for the tech sector and for the government. And the reason we're focusing on it at ITI is because our member companies are big customers of and service providers to the government here in the U.S. at the federal government, state and local governments, and indeed around the world. The services and products that the technology industry provides are crucially important to the ability of the U.S. government to serve its citizens. So we are very focused on IT modernization questions and investment in government infrastructure. Indeed, you alluded to testimony that one of the great ITI team members gave before Congress just in the last few days on the subject of IT modernization, Gordon Bitko, who leads our public sector work at ITI, actually joined us fairly recently as the former CIO of the FBI. So he's well familiar with the needs of government to invest in infrastructure. Look, government has a very basic function in the U.S., and that is to keep its citizens safe, to protect 
and ensure the economic growth and development of our economy. And IT and tech infrastructure is vitally important to all of those roles. So that's why we're really focused on this issue. Gordon's testimony for my listeners, and anyone who's listening to the podcast is probably pretty familiar testimony, is really worth reading. He has some great proof points. He talks about the April 2013 Boston Marathon bombing that he was part of, and they collected approximately 50 terabytes of data at that time. was huge. Five years later, the 2017 Las Vegas shooting investigation had one petabyte of data. And then how difficult it still is for the FBI to stay up to speed with their government equipment compared to what others are doing. And he also makes an interesting point about, you know, kind of legacy equipment versus doing more cloud infrastructure. And so we're definitely seeing an interest in going towards more cloud. But I really thought the items that he brought up in his testimony drove home the importance of bringing in the public-private sector to IT and figuring out how what is good for the government to own, what is good for the more private companies to bring to the table. And I know, especially in what we call the three-letter agencies, they're getting a little more comfortable with sharing this around there. So how are you seeing the partnerships grow? Particularly in the time of the pandemic, these partnerships are incredibly important to the functioning of government. And as you noted, Gordon Bitco in his testimony talked about the importance of investment in infrastructure upgrades. And one of those areas where it's most important is just making sure that government employees can work remotely, something that is not at all certain even today, several months into the pandemic. The importance of that government investment in infrastructure, the modernization, is in certain circumstances really about the technology that government uses. You mentioned the shift to cloud technology, which for some agencies is incredibly important although other agencies for reasons of security or infrastructure need to maintain servers present at certain locations. But that cloud infrastructure available for primary or backup use enables employees of the federal government to work remotely. And that's been incredibly important in recent months. In 2019, so just last year, the GAO put out a report related to modernization plans and actually called on all federal agencies to develop modernization plans for critical legacy systems. And these legacy systems, in some cases, and we've all heard the stories, involve government agencies using old programming languages like COBOL that are obsolete, <laughs> or they're using unsupported hardware, or they have security vulnerabilities because of outdated infrastructure. So our argument to government is that these are critical needs. You know, if the IRS can't process taxes, Some people might be happy about that, but the government needs that revenue in order to keep operating. We need to make sure that agencies are looking at their infrastructure, that they have a plan to modernize that infrastructure, and that they make the shift to the kind of infrastructure that will allow them to fulfill their critical missions. Which is a really interesting challenge when you're used to owning everything within your physical space, which I realize is just a lot of the way that people think about having control. One of the things he mentions in his testimony is in 2018, there were actually commercial providers who decided to decline to actually bid for things because they were worried they would fall behind so quickly compared to the way the commercial market works. And that that sounds kind of dangerous. seems like we're just constantly running behind in our government choices. Yeah, government acquisition is a unique animal. And it's obviously set up in a certain way because the government is different than any private sector buyer of technology. They need to go through certain processes to make sure they consider the best options and get the best prices on behalf of the taxpayers. But in some circumstances, as you noted, 
those rules make it a struggle for the government to review and accredit new technology in a timely fashion. And this is particularly important in areas related to security because we don't want the government to have a bureaucracy or a process limit the ability to move quickly to adopt innovative technologies that protect infrastructure, that protect Americans. So there is that bureaucracy versus moving quickly tension. Some areas we talk about in suggesting reforms, for example, the Anti-Deficiency Act, which prohibits expenditures in excess of appropriations, is often cited as a reason why the government can't buy pay-as-you-go consumption services, like software as a service because it would commit the government to spending money in future years. Now, the Anti-Deficiency Act, when it was adopted, was an effort to restrain future government spending. It was well-intentioned. But when you move to technology models that require multi-year subscriptions, the Anti-Deficiency Act prevents the government from using those services. So there are a lot of areas where even inadvertent, well-intentioned measures to protect taxpayers prevent the government from moving quickly. And we're hoping that we can get some of those addressed. That sounds like a great idea. In another area, it's a little separate, but yet the government's still very involved. When we get to the policy arena, we're seeing a lot of interest in what's going on in privacy in general. We still don't have a federal privacy regulation here in the United States. But beyond that, we've gotten in a bit of trouble with Europe lately. The EU-US privacy shield was struck down by the courts in in Europe. And so what happens now? How does that affect our U.S. suppliers and the information that flows across them? Well, you highlighted the, the most important part of this privacy discussion, which is the United States inexplicably does not have a federal privacy law, and we need one. ITI has as one of its policy priorities the adoption of a national privacy regime. Plenty of states have their own individual privacy laws, but of course, technology innovation doesn't necessarily reflect state borders. It's very hard for a company deploying technology or frankly, for a small business using technology to adapt to 50 different privacy regimes on on various state levels. We need a national privacy law in the US. So having said that, Let's talk about what happened in Europe. Now, of course, Europe has a continent-wide privacy law. It's called GDPR, and it's been in force for a number of years. It replaced 28 separate country regimes with one national privacy law, which was a great measure and something that we hope will happen here in the U.S. So the decision that you referred to is called the Schrems II decision. Schrems is actually a person. He's an Austrian who, as a student, sued because he thought his privacy was being violated under rules that allow the U.S. and the EU to agree on something called a privacy shield, which is a rule that protects data transferred back and forth between the EU and the U.S. Now, without going into great detail about the decision, because it is a detailed decision, what happens as a result of that is, in in the short term, nothing because companies rely on contracts to protect privacy. But in the longer term, the privacy shield agreement is something that we need to see put back in place. The court in Europe raised some concerns about privacy shield because of U.S. government policies about privacy protection, particularly related to government agency access to information from citizens outside of the U.S. So what ITI is doing in the first instance is we are reminding customers of technology companies that contract clauses remain in force 
and that contracts protect the exchange of data across continents. And in the second instance, we're talking to governments, the U.S. government, governments in, in the EU, to make sure we move forward and renegotiate a privacy shield solution to take us back to where we were. I always love that privacy shield was the replacement for the privacy, the harbor, the safe harbor, which makes me always wonder how those multilateral conversations go amongst all the participants who are like, let's call it a bridge. No, no, bridge is not enough. It does definitely give the idea that we think of it as data, or I do, data data. And it's important to understand what people are collecting. Over in Europe, they have a different perspective on the way that the information is and, and is handled. So it's, it's definitely a challenge for everybody engaged there. And I completely wholeheartedly agree with you that we are at a stage where we need uh, federal privacy legislation. I'm a big proponent of transparency and accountability. You tell us what you're going to collect, and we believe you. And you're supposed to not do more than that. So we'll see where we get on that. That'll be an interesting thing. There'll probably be an issue we can talk about next year, too, but hopefully we'll resolve it. Anything else going on at ITI we should be aware of watching all you smart people over there? Yeah, we're really focused on a number of really important policy issues, first and foremost at a high level. We're spending a lot of time reminding decision makers, policymakers about the important role that the tech industry plays in helping our nation adapt to and eventually recover from the health pandemic that we face. It's enormously heartening to see how important the tech industry is in allowing us all to work from home to learn from home in the case of the millions of American students who will not be returning to school physically in the fall, but will be learning from home. The importance of the role of the tech industry in helping the search for a vaccine and at the same time allowing Americans to access healthcare remotely, talk to their doctor over the internet. So we're very focused on that portion of the tech industry's contribution to the U.S. economy. And there are policy issues wrapped up in that as well. We've certainly seen, and and Shane, you've talked a lot about this, the concerns about access to infrastructure and the digital divide and investment in that infrastructure. There are tens of millions of Americans who don't have access to broadband. Why is that? Because we need to do more. And the government has a role to play in that and making sure the airwaves are available for use in in 5G wireless, making sure that we get access to the rights of way necessary to invest in physical infrastructure for wireline broadband connectivity where where wireless doesn't necessarily work. Even in inner cities, we see a divide between those who have access and those who don't. So we're focused a lot on those infrastructure investment questions. What can the U.S. government do? What can industry do to make sure that all Americans have access to these vital technologies? They're not luxuries anymore. Access to broadband, access to technology is a necessity, and we need to make sure that we stay focused there. Fantastic. Jason, thank you so much for your time and all the work that you and your member companies do. They have certainly made the whole strangeness of COVID more capable for everybody, and keep leading on that path. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here to have this important discussion about the important role that technology plays in all of our lives. And thank you for continuing to keep the focus on what we need to do as a country to adopt public policies that advance innovation. Absolutely. 